it's very ancient Spain and there's some exceptional antiquities as a man traveling that way I come by a similar uh, figure and uh, it was in the southern part of that particular area again well there are abundance of wonderful antiquities and works of art in Spain because it hasn't been caught up with the dealers and sellers and people of Western Europe really so all that wonderful works of art and antiquity still lies in Spain Marky Robinson, artist the son of a house painter and a linen stitcher born Belfast February 1918 he died in the same city in January 1999 I loved my father but it was a very dysfunctional family I was 12 when I left and I hadn't seen him I had written some letters to him and then we had been quite estranged for a number of years so I was about uh, 30 when I came back to meet him in Dublin I had been back to Ireland before that but hadn't run into him so I met him in St. Stephen's Green which is just around the corner from us here and uh, we had had to go off and we sat in a bench and I had to get everything out of my backpack and uh, all of my ID because he didn't believe I was his wee daughter and he said no 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 you're not my wee daughter Marie she had a twinkle in her eye there's no twinkle in your eye and then he said you're Jane Fonder you're an American play actress the CIA has sent you so I had to but you know part of it I think was just an act with him too so I got all my stuff out and finally he was convinced and uh, and then we started our um, uh, you know, funny little relationship. And then I'd come back every year, every couple of years. And we actually kept in touch uh, quite consistently after that, you know. I mean, there was always ups and downs, you know, uh, trying to kill him and all that. But, you know, there was a, a good, there was a, some obsession there, I'd say, in the family. We really couldn't ever really get away from each other. But, um, you know, it, it wasn't the kind of love that you see in healthy families. And it was one of these benches over here? Uh, yeah, yeah, right along here. It was always nice to get away in Stevens Green and, and have some fresh air. So this is where I'd spend a lot of time with him. I'd meet him because he was always in Dublin. So I'd meet him, we'd come to the Green and just uh, sit in a bench for a while and chat and then go have a meal. And what would you talk about? Well, that's an interesting question because, uh, you know, we talk about the old relatives and and um, I talk about, his, you know, his art and what he thought about art. And uh, we talk about my sister and, you know, just, I guess, normal things. Like you were talking to a normal person, except he wasn't, he wasn't actually a normal person. <laughs> We're at the Apollo. On Dame Street in and Dublin. Here we go, in the door, in the Apollo Gallery. The famous Hugh Charlton proprietor sitting on his chair on his throne. It's a little warmer in here, isn't it? Oh, it's nice and warm in here. This is the Hugh Charlton of the Apollo Gallery. Pleased to meet you, Kevin Hi. Rafter. How are Hi, you? Kevin. Hugh is the one that was instrumental in bringing Marky's wee family back into reunion with Marky. And uh, set up the meeting in Stevens Green. And, I'm a photograph yeah. of, of uh, I, you have photographed the first time, yeah. Yeah, time yeah and after, I had to prove to him. After 18 years? I had to get my after passport. 18 after 18 years, <laughs> I had to get my passport out. <laughs> and remember, I was Jane Fonder. I wasn't his daughter. An American play actress in the C 
CIA was behind it. You knew him quite well. <laughs> oh, yeah, he slapped on the floor. He just slapped on the floor. He just yeah. lay down on the floor and slept there for the night. <laughs> Mark, he was a total loner. I mean, Mark, he was virtually a tramp walking around with a little trolley. So Marky painted on scraps of paper from Brown Thomas's skip, and that's the material he used. So if somebody paints on Elizabeth Arden sales sign, it's easy to dismiss them, you know, <laughs> who take that seriously. And, of course, uh, Marky didn't care about his image. So uh, in, in that sense, if you give people an opportunity to dismiss you, they will dismiss you. He's somebody who worked his way from the bottom up. The critics all despised him. I don't think he ever got a, a good critical review in his life. In fact, the opposite. P- this is Peter Nuttall. He knew Marky very well, so he did this portrait of him. Uh, that's an etching. And this is, this is Peter here. Uh, Peter, this Hello. Is Peter Nuttall. Hello. And uh, oh, he, 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 knew, he knew Marky very well. And that's a very good... Um, Reproduction of my, now that catches Marky very well. The overcoats he, he wore about three or four overcoats, yeah. sears cap, oh, with the scarf. He was a horror of getting cold near the horror of drafts. But he went on. Remember, he went with uh, what's his name, Jimmy Bingham. What was he? T- and they uh, Jimmy Bingham, Bingham said they went. He was too cheap to get a, a double room, so there was only one bed. And so Mark, he said, that's fine, I'll, you take the bed. And he slept in the to- around the toilet, around the loo. You couldn't say he was schizophrenic. He was multiple schizophrenic. He had about ten personalities, and you never knew what, from day to day which one you were dealing with. Some days he was eminently sensible, and some days he talked what seemed opposite rubbish. People thought it was rubbish, but in fact it was... Like Joyce's Ulysses, he's a highly intelligent man, and the ideas were coming from him so fast that the, that they were coming in layers one upon the other. So if you get to knew him, you could learn to decipher the rubbish out. Hi there. When Markey died in 1999, his passing merited two sentences in the Irish Times. Renowned Irish artist Marky Robinson who was 80, died yesterday at his North Belfast home. He'd been suffering from flu and had called off a trip to Dublin earlier in the week. So the newspaper recorded. Its arts critic had once noted that he could find nothing favourable to say about Marky's art. Leaving Annie Robinson and New Charlton, the man who brought father and daughter back together, I walked the short distance in Dublin city centre from the Apollo Gallery to Ian White's art auction house. Yours is one of the busiest art auction houses in the capital uh, and we're standing here in front of two, I suppose, representative works of Marky Robinson. He is a particular favourite uh, in the, the art auction world, isn't he? He is. He, he'd be one of the most popular uh, Irish artists of the last 50 years and uh, I, I can see why he is a strong, he's a simple approach to his subject, um, he's very, very recognisable. Uh, people, and even people who know nothing about art, would recognise a Marky Robinson in a person's house. The top one here that we're looking at is that a distinctive, typical Marky Robinson painting? You, you've got a lot of the the typical contents um, of of a Marky picture. For a start, you've the shawlies walking along the path towards a village, 
uh, with the white gables and the brown roofs. All of these would be trademarks. The trees he's got in, uh, turf, turf stacks on the right. And in the back, the looming uh, Ackle Island um, uh, the big mountain there. Uh, also, one of the things that is interesting is the way we've, we've, we've placed Marky in our catalogue for this particular sale. And we picked the, this, this picture and the other picture, which is the crucifixion, we placed them in the middle of his contemporaries, who would be Jared Dillon, Daniel O'Neill. Um, and it, it's deliberately done because they, there is a similarity in style between those artists. And in the in the 1940s, uh, Markey was very, very highly regarded by some of the leading collectors. Now, nowadays, some of the ac- more academic collectors would poo-poo Markey, but um, it is interesting that one of the major collectors at the time, Lewinter Frankel, who was, um, I think, a, 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 a foreigner to say that, I think he was from hung- Hungary originally, and he'd set up textile factories in Belfast during the war. Uh, and he was a major collector of, of Irish art, of Jack Yates, Gerard Dillon, Dan O'Neill, and Marky Robinson, he was interviewed for a, for a uh, magazine in the 1940s and asked who was you know, the most important artist at the time. And he said Marky Robinson. In his later years, he became very prolific and he tended to churn out the same picture over and over again. And I suppose the, the commercialism could have been applied there. Um, I, I remember um, talking to a famous framer here in Dublin, Liam Slattery, and uh, I, I was giving out about a, a Marky picture uh, of a clown and I said look at that a clown it took him five minutes to do that and he'll, it'll probably sell for about 1500 euro or whatever and Liam quite rightly said well it took five minutes to do it but it took 70 years to learn how to do it so he was right even in our uh, what we call our prestige sales where we have the Jack Yates's and the Dillons and the Lebrockies and all the rest of it we will include uh, major pieces by Marky Robinson if we're lucky enough to get them um, and I can see the day when a Marky Robinson will fetch 100,000 I know of a few um, that are in private collections that I would be very surprised if they didn't fetch somewhere in the region of fifty to 60,000 at least and I do know I've seen one in a gallery I think not so far from here where I think the asking price is around 100,000 so he is getting there you can all hear me then. Uh, welcome to our auction, uh, the first of the season. Uh, for white that type of money is a world away from the one Mark he lived like in. Five months since we were here, but as a young man, he worked on the merchant ships as a dishwasher. He was an apprentice welder at Harland & Wolfe. He even made a name for himself as an amateur boxer. He said boxing was good, but painting was better. He married May Clark and through the 1950s and 60s, they shared a small house in Belfast with their two young daughters. It was two rooms above a garage. It did have running water, but nothing, n- nothing else. No full kitchen or anything like that. Um, basically two rooms, and that's where he had his studio and his wee family. Um, so uh, my sister was, lived there until she was eight, and I was born when she was eight. So there was two children and his wife living in these two rooms. So it was very Spartan, and um, we did have a fireplace, um, and she would cook over a little, you know, um, kerosene. And he would paint there. So I sort of grew up with the smell of, of the turpentine and the whole thing and the oil paints. Nobody really came near, you know, the family tried to stay away because of his rantings and ravings and basic insanities. But, you know, of children, we had no place else to go. Um, I, you know, I remember him uh, teasing me as a child you know, poking at me and teasing me. 
and uh, quite a menacing presence when he was around. You didn't want to really be around him for long, you know. I would take off on the streets, so I would run around the streets and go to parks and, you know, find sweet shops to work in and things like that, just to, you know, I'd find my own places to go outside those two rooms. So, um, and then, of course, like I said, I grew my nails very long. Uh, if, he, if he would come and tease me, come at me teasing me, I would uh, just go for his face. <laughs> and uh, pretty soon he would leave me alone. Yeah. Uh, and so... So it, it was difficult in terms of the relationship with your father. He was a, a really menacing, agitating, loud, obnoxious, filthy presence to be around. You know, I don't know how I ended up so normal except for the grace of God. There was maybe a dream about, you know, leaving and getting away from from him and his behavior. Uh, also, we were being kicked out of the house we were living in. So uh, something had to happen. Um, but I just found out a week before. So my mother had been conversing with my sister and working on this. It, it was all, you know, we, we had to wait for him to go away, so there was timing, and you know, it had to be the right timing. And he took off on one of his trips, and then a few days later we left. So we got him away, and then we just made a run for it. Uh, I mean, he didn't really care about us, but at the same time he was obsessed with us, you know. And I think that a lot of his paintings was was about his his family and his longing to be normal, you know, his longing to have a normal family life. He had not, he really had a a connection with us because of his mental illness, but he had conjured one up within his own brain. And, um, you know, the long and the short of it, if the house was burning down, he would have been the first one out. And his family could have perished in the flames, you know. I mean, that's how it was. But uh, I don't know how we lived. We got the dole, but for a while he was getting the money. So, you know, I don't know how my mother, how she lived. We just lived on shillings a week. Um, They never paid any rent. So he would do a few paintings, and then he'd get all his money, and then he'd spend it on himself. So he'd go travel, or he'd go, uh, that was one of the things he liked to do. Always trying to travel to get to the sun. And where did he travel to? Any place the sun he could get to where they'd let him, where they'd let him off the boat. Uh, Spain, you know, France, Paris was easy enough to get to, and a big city where a nutcase could blend in easily. Back to the Spanish mainland and all the the delights, there is quite a lot of a desert. And uh, if you've gone through that way, it's very, very becoming. First of all, uh, you should all, if you are interested, if you intend to bid tonight, you should have a paddle that is a, a card with a number on it. You'll be identified by that number during the sale, uh, and that's how we will know your your, your invoices and so forth. Um, as regards it payment. is completely desert. There's very little difference between some of these places and North Africa, Mallorca. It is a very exceptional island for the Balearics. On the west coast, there are great mountains and beautiful villages, but there are big monasteries. 
They make leprechaun brandy. They make a Benedictine wine. And these are beautiful villages to come on tomorrow. when you're popping through the We are here from 10 o'clock to 4 o'clock, 10 a.m. So anytime uh, within those hours you can come here, you can collect, you can bring your car right up to the door and collect the lots and, and bring them home. But this part, you do know also how the artists stand about in these halls at the markets in Paris doing sketches and observing colour and observing the fishwives and observing the fruit gatherers and the vegetable arrangements and uh, how they do in Paris and the artists generally stand about and take an odd bit of stuff with them home and everybody talks and everyone's happy. Got on the bus Belfast to the docks. We took the ferry to England, then we took the train across England. We get on the train in England, and we had a little cubicle. We're we're sitting, and he's on one side, and my mother and myself are on the other. And he whips out a snack that he had bought for himself and brought it over from Ireland. And apparently, he it was just the right time for him to eat this. So he unrolls the newspaper, and what he has for himself are some pigs' feet. So he starts chewing on these pigs' feet, you know, using his hands, eating these pigs' feet. And this little Englishman is walking by, and he just did a double take in the window. He didn't know, you know, what it was quite a scene, this man eating these pigs' feet. So Marky jumps up, furious, and pulls down the blinds and has a has a fit. But anyway, that was so we ended up getting to Paris and you know stayed in some old cheap hotel on the top floor by the railroad station, uh, by some Laguerre, and so um, and then he would we'd go rummaging through all the old secondhand uh, um, markets that they had in Paris, and. Um, uh, there was an instant, so he's taken his family to Paris, so we go up the stairs, and he's got this asthma attack, so he's in the bottom of the stairs, wheezing, huffing, and puffing, and again, whenever we saw a weakness in him, we, you know, saw the, the great hilarity and the great release of, of um, humor that this tyrant and bully all of a sudden was in this weakened state and we could actually laugh at him. So we laughed and had a good time at at his expense. So when he finally got to the top of the stairs, then the laughing didn't turn to sorrow because he was going to throw my mother out the window. <laughs> but anyway, he didn't. We survived that. And, and he had a big ranting and raving. And I don't even remember some of it. It was so horrible. There was always a scene like the pig's feet in the train or, you know, there could also be interactions with the foreigners, people at large, that, you know, um, would be very stressful and aggressive. So uh, there was always a state of aggression with him. So on our way back, we took the train to London, and from the coast to London, and then another scene erupted. So we're on the train, and there's no seats, and there's all these school children that the trains the carriages have been reserved for. And so he just goes into the carriage with all these school children and makes us sit down in one of the booths. Um, and so then the schoolmasters come by and they tell him, well, we have all of these carriages reserved for us. And, you know, uh, you have to move. And so he 
uh, jumps up, finds some paper, and uh, spits on it and slaps it on the window. And he said, yes, it's reserved. It's reserved for us. We're sitting here. So then they saw, I mean, these, these men realized that they're dealing with someone that's off his rocker. So they just quietly, you know, went away and we had to sit there with 100 school children. So and, and myself being a school child, it was very embarrassing, very mortifying. Um, I mean, this was, he was never a pleasant character to be around. So the next year when they took off on an English bus tour of Riviera, I passed and uh, there was no more trips with him. Tell me in terms of when you were a kid, were you conscious of the fact that your father was an artist, a painter? Well, yes, I was. And he was quite supportive of, of my artistic um, talent and interest. And, uh, and he did support that, although I didn't care much for his support. I didn't really uh, seek it or want it, but he would always um, try to see what I was doing or painting or, you know... Um, and, but I can remember being in primary school and the teacher asking us what our fathers did and we had to write it down. So I wrote artist. And so when they, when he came to me, there was another teacher in the room too he was talking to. When he read that, he burst out laughing. It was a great joke. So, um, and I didn't really get the joke. I don't know if I had written artist wrong, that's what I thought, or, but I just didn't get the joke. Uh, I mean, I certainly took it seriously that, that he was an artist, and, um, but I think that in the world we lived in, in uh, that area in Belfast, uh, the close-mindedness and the bigotry of, of people's awareness was such that you know, anything out of the ordinary would have been a joke to them, yeah. He had a little bed out in his studio room. He would just put up an easel and, and just, he, he was very simple with, uh, he didn't need a big studio. He just needed his little easel. He'd do one painting at a time. And he'd paint on cardboard. So it was all stuff that was around. And uh, he wasn't that fussy about what paints he used, whatever he could find cheaply. So, um, and when he was on Drumcondra Road painting there in his, he had a, a, a couple of rooms and he would just set up, very simple, he'd just have a little chair and he'd set up a little, you know, his, his what he was painting, the, the canvas, the, well he wouldn't use hardly ever canvas, but the whatever he was painting on you know, prop it up somehow, like on a couple of bricks or something, so that it was upright, and uh, had a bunch of dirty brushes in a, in a jar, and he'd just start, just start painting. So I learned from him that, you know, there's not all this big environment thing that you have to do. You don't need this big studio, and it's, you just sit down wherever you are, and you can paint a painting. So he was very simple when it came to... Um, you know, putting his stuff out, yeah. making his art. It wasn't extravagant or um, complicated. You know, there were some things that he had put time into, some, some painting, but he always said that there was a little bit of art in all of his paintings, uh, even the, the stuff that he would just get out there. And, um, uh, you know, when they were paying him to quit painting, yeah, there was stuff that he put out there that, you know, was worth two quid, maybe. And um, 
So, and of course, that's always been the way. The artist is the one that gets exploited in the end. You know, whether his paintings were good or bad, the thing is, nobody was really giving him any money for the paintings. You know, over the years, he had saved up a little bit of money in his bank accounts. But, I mean, when he died, really and truly, there wasn't much there. So he... um you know, just like uh, in the past, a lot of these people die um, destitute and in poverty. You know, Van Gogh, Gauguin, deceased, destitute, poverty. And their paintings are worth millions later. I'm not saying that Marky is in that same category. I'm just using as that as an example. Is that when he was painting, yes, he put lots of stuff out there, but he was getting very little money for it. So to him, it, the, the, there was no incentive to be doing great works of art because he was getting the same amount of money for the great works and for his, uh, what he'd call his trade work. They all exploited him. Uh, they Yes, they paid him for the paintings, but paintings, of course, are worth much, much more, even at that time when they sold them, than what he got for them. And now, of course, they're worth much, much, much more. Then... <laughs> well, he was exploited, of course. I mean, most people in the art business in Dublin, most people in the art business in Dublin, wouldn't be in the art business only for Marky. I mean, selling Marky's pictures was enormously profitable, and if anyone else, anyone who say otherwise, just isn't telling the truth. Uh, but um, the point of the matter is, uh, so he, he sold the pictures for nothing, and and they were sold for very good money. But the point about the the point of the matter is, Marky knew what they're being sold for. It, it was his way of, of trading. He was there when people were buying them, and uh, and w- once um, when um, I sold a picture and he was there, and he said, "Oh, I should give him something," so I gave him some extra money, and he and he was perfectly happy. So he, he was really ahead of his time because he was um, he was the first person sell pictures as lost leaders most of the pictures most of the artists were pressing their were pricing their pictures in thousands and selling nothing Marky was selling his pictures very reasonably and he always had money who was was accumulating a lot of money so me Marky was getting money for selling pictures for very little the other artists were had no money for selling pictures very dear and he told me a story whether you heard it yourself um where she went visiting, and they went visiting one Christmas with Michael Flanagan in Belfast. That's right. Uh, she told you that, did mm. you? Yeah. Oh, that's that's true. And then, uh, well, f- f- no, f- Michael Flanagan was a dealer up in the north who just um, who simply sold his pictures. He used to let. Um, I think yeah, Margie may have stayed with him for a while. Certainly, he fed him. But of course, like all, all, all Margie's relationships, it, it ended badly. I mean, Margie. If anyone got friends with Mark, he got he got paranoid. He got felt that they were trying to get in on him. Mr. Flanagan would pick him up and take him places. He would take him back to his house. They had a house in Belfast, and you know the Mrs. Flanagan would cook him a meal and all this. So Marky, in essence, that was part of the payment was the uh, social life involved and the chauffeuring and the fact that he had uh, some fa- a family that would take him in from time to time. 
But anyway, I came over for Christmas and I was met Marky in Dublin where he was living. So Michael Flanagan came to collect Marky, was going to take him up to Belfast. Marky was going to spend Christmas with the Flanagans and I was going to go on and visit my mother in Derry and spend Christmas with them. So um, we got up to and it was uh, it, it started off badly because Flanagan... Uh, he came down to Dublin. He had his wife, and he had a, a child, and maybe there was another something else. And so there was all that going on. Then there was Marky, and then there was me, and I was a bit jet-lagged. And all these people stuck in a little car, you know, after going to see the nativity scene and this and that, and driving all the way up to Belfast. So it didn't start out too well, you know, in the back of the car. Marky got the front seat, of course. So, and I'm stuffed in the back with all of Flanagan's family. So then we got into Flanagan's, and I was going to stay there a night or two or something and then go off to Derry. So, but I, I talked to my sister on the phone, and Marky didn't like something I said and poked me in the ribs. And so one thing led to another, and there was some furball, um, you know, back and forth with him. And, but he was actually getting on my nerves quite a bit. You know, I, I was sort of putting him in, putting him in his place you know, and um, and calling him on some of his behavior and his insanities and stuff. So, well, I, he didn't like what I had to say. And up he jumped and socked me right in the jaw. Like real, a uh, real punch right in the jaw, like he was going to knock me out. Well, he was a man of about 70-something then, but still spry enough, believe me. And... Um, so I was quite startled and quite shocked, but he didn't knock me out. And so I thought, okay, that's it. You're dead. So I looked around for something to kill him with. And the Flanagans, they had a fire going, and they had a mantle there, and they had a, a, a cut glass vase above the mantle. So I grabbed that. That was the closest thing. And he got it over his head. And he's standing there. And I thought, well, that didn't do it. So I'm looking around for something else, and I see the poker. So I thought, that'll kill him. So I just, and what was going through my head, I just thought, you know, we have suffered all this abuse for so long. It's been this sort of, uh, uh, this, this menacing, bullying father, you know, uh, uh, controlling and the whole thing. And here I am. Not, you know, being here out of the nicety of my heart to spend some time with them, and he's still doing this abusive behavior. So I thought, that's it. We've, you know, my mother's taken it, my sister's taken it, I've taken it. He's going to die now. So I got the poker, and with all my weight, I brought it above my head, and I was going to literally split his head open. And just at that moment, when I was bringing the poker down, Michael Flanagan, who is a really big man, he's over six feet tall, huge, enormous. Uh, comes rushing into the room, got in the way of the poker, so Marky was saved for another few years. And of course, and in particular times, it was great pilgrimage to Saragossa. There were coast roads in particular days, which took the people direct from it. He lived to a few weeks short of his 81st birthday, painting and pining for his family to the end. On her visits to Dublin, Annie would sit with her father on the park bench in St. Stephen's Green, but there was no real reconciliation. But it was very interesting to see the different classes of craft and work and art. In truth, he was a neglectful father and a difficult husband. He was a troubled human being. 
but always a talented artist and one who remains a salesroom favourite. They have never seen many people from different parts. So we were discussing southern Moorish Spain, which is very delectable and has a great uh, romance about it, of the palm trees waving and those Moorish people getting in a boat for Tangier. No, no, 34. Uh, Marky Robinson, the first of the Marky Robinsons. And uh, nice, interesting village on Ackle. Nice work, this. And um, this is uh, with me at 7,000 euro only. At 7,000 with my bidder. At 7,000 against the row of 7,000. 7,500 here. 8,500. 9,000 euro with me against the row of 9,000. 9,000 euro. Well, there are people in there, they call the Touré. And uh, they have some strange and wonderful... 9,500, I'm selling in the room at 9,500, if there's no more, 10,000 at the back. Thought there would be 10,000. At 10,000, you're going on, sir? No, you're finished. 10,000 at the very back at 10,000. Selling at 10,000, if there's no more. 10,000 euro to bid a 128 at the moment. It's yours. 35. And their colour... And the day of the dawn. You have a lot of you have a lot of marquees on sale oh, here. Yeah. yeah. Oh Are yeah. Are there any in particular? This is a nice one, isn't it? Yeah. That's a delightful one. A little still life. Yeah. Uh, I show you one. This one. I think. Um, oh, there you are. That's very typical. Very, very typical. Yeah, it's a lovely one. The, the shawlies and the cottages. That's only about. Yeah. I'd be about forty years old. Wow. The old ones are more sought after. This is. Um, this is the, um, the crucifixion. Plato said that the most beautiful image in art is a straight line. That was the ultimate beautiful image in art. And that was uh, Plato's theory. And Marky taking Plato's theory of art used a straight line for the ultimate event in human history, the crucifixion. Usually you have the crucifixion, you know, the traditional cross. This is the Christ on cross, there's the good thief and this is the bad thief in the um, bad thief you have the darkness closing in and in the good good thief you have the brightness of grace closing in but uh, if you move this picture from a distance the darkness disappears and and the the light of grace moves in on the bad thief Marky making a statement no one's condemned. No one can say anyone's condemned. In- the forgiveness is infinite. It's one of the most original statements of the crucifixion I've ever seen. I do make a distinction between what I knew in my personal life of his man and also his art. I really can enjoy his art, and uh, I take it uh, for what it is at face value, without having any emotional impact from my dealings with him throughout my life. You were an artist as well. The talent is there in the family. Um, look, has, has part of Marky rubbed off on you in that sense? Um, well, I have always painted. It was always uh, a, a way for me to express myself. I've always felt like I had that. I had art. I mean, I did my first oil painting when I was two years old. I can remember that. And Marky would have encouraged that. Uh, he would have been quite interested to see what children would paint. You know, that would be interesting for him. Um, 
So, and then all through my teenage, it was always part of, of my, uh, you know, my time, my life. So, and I did get that from Marky. Um, the thing that I've hit on in my art is, is almost a similar theme, which is um, the, a place of rest, a home. Uh, and I do the cottages. And he, yes, he gave me the art, I think, just genetically, and also the skill growing up with him, and the, uh, the idea that that is something to do, that that's a way to express yourself, because I was around that from the time I was a young, young child. But the theme he also gave me uh, in, a, in a negative sense, but I've turned it into a positive thing because the theme that he gave me was that I never had a home. I never had uh, a resting place in this, in this world, either in this country or the country I immigrated to. There was never a secure place for me as a child. We were always getting kicked out of our house. Um, we never had a house. We were always looking for some place to live. So this theme is deep in my subconscious, deep in my brain, as um, a rest, a place to rest, a place to call home. And that comes across, um, you know, I do these little cottages by the sea. A lot of times there's a little boat. And all of that has uh, a lot of meaning deep within me. And it's, it's a very spiritual thing. Um, and I have come to see that as part of my heritage from Marky, not just with the art, but the heritage of, of never having a home, of always ha of looking for that and, um, and coming to terms with that spiritually in my life, finding a resting place. You were asking me if this, his behavior, his mental illness, came out in his art and I thought that sometimes it does and I think this is an example here where we see the really dark dark foreboding mountain that is this insurmountable obstacle in the path of these two um, of this couple that's in the foreground the Shawleys in the foreground right and the little cottage but what they're looking out over a lake uh, over a body of water into this huge, huge, dark, brooding mountain. But that, to me, is was part of his is um, how it came out in his how his mental illness came out in his sometimes in his paintings. This is looking at life and how the the obstacles that he had to overcome were really insurmountable. He never really got over that mountain. He was stuck in. Uh, in many ways with his mental illness and from the society he came from and because of his mental illness he never really broke free from it completely getting back to a painting on the beaches there, there is some marvelous coves and uh, you get your rubber dinghy and you can go out and make sketches from the sea and uh, you take precautions but you make yourself well out into the, into the lovely quiet dawn in the morning and get the mist effects off offshore and the ebb tide. Very beautiful. 